we would like to speak as your leaders against the horrific murder of George Floyd and stand with all those who have faced abuse and prejudice because of the color of their skin. We pray by God's grace and infinite mercy that he will deliver our society from this evil of racism in all its forms. We have never had to face this kind of abuse and we are deeply sorry for those who have. We cannot know what it is like to walk in your shoes and we repent on behalf of all those who have ill-treated you. We want to stand with you as Grace Vineyard family and say, Black Lives Matter. Some people have asked me why I don't say all lives matter. I truly believe they do. But when my son fell and hurt himself, it didn't make sense to say your sister matters. At that moment, he needed me to embrace him and say you matter and your pain matters. Your healing and return to health matters. It doesn't diminish my love for his sister any more than saying black lives matter diminishes my love for anyone who is suffering. This is a time to shine the light of Jesus on a particular injustice that has been going on for far too long and I recognize the evil it perpetuates. Martin Luther King Jr. said, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Injustice anywhere threatens justice everywhere. Racism is a spiritual issue, not a political issue, because it affects your hearts, spirits, and the way we live. When we took over the leadership of Grace Vineyard eight years ago, Ellie Mumford, who you heard last Sunday, prophesied Micah 6.8 over us, and it scrolled up on the screen every Sunday morning at the beginning of our meetings. This is what it says. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to love justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. May we, the people of Grace Vineyard, do this. As we begin to pray, can we all pray the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi together, which will come up on the screen, and then pray against racism in all its forms in our nation and the nations of the world. Lord, make, make me, me an instrument, instrument of thy, of thy peace. peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, 
to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Hello to each and every one of you who has Zoomed in to join our Sunday worship time this morning or are listening online. My name is Ray and I am, for want of any better description, a retired dentist. Although hopefully this does not define me or my character. Today we are continuing our series looking into the Bible book of the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 5. This includes an uncomfortable passage about what happened to a couple called Ananias and Sapphira, followed by an account of when the apostles were arrested and put in prison by the temple authorities in Jerusalem, only to be found absent the following morning. Firstly then, Ananias and Sapphira. Although a good number of people name their children after Bible characters, Matthew, David, Mark, Samuel, John, Rachel, Rebecca, Ruth, Sarah and the like. The names of Ananias and Sapphira are definitely not at all popular. Among my many dental patients over the years, I am sure I have never treated anyone called Ananias. And probably never a Sapphira either. The name Ananias actually means God is gracious. But, as we will see, it is not the name itself, but how he responded or did not respond to God's grace, that is the story. Nor will we find his wife Sapphira to be a real gem. In over 60 years of church attendance, I cannot remember hearing this story in Sunday school as a child, nor in a talk about this passage in church as an adult. The story is possibly disturbing to us because it seems too close for comfort. One Bible commentator went as far as to say that it is the most horrific passage in the New Testament. So, reading from Acts 5 verses 1 to 11 in the New International Version then, this is the story. Now a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. 
About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Superficially, we see a couple from within the early church lying about a financial transaction they had made together, both then dying suddenly when they were found out and challenged about it. The early church at the time was probably only a few weeks old at the most and still finding its feet. Maybe this was the first episode of flagrant sin within it and learning how to handle it. In Acts 2 verse 42 to 44, we are told that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. This is repeated in a similar passage at the end of chapter 4, but is then followed by a specific example. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. In comparison with what Barnabas the Cypriot did, the story about Ananias and Sapphira is different. Yes, like him, they sold a piece of property, but before Ananias gave the money over to the apostles to use, they secretly kept a portion of it back for themselves. I wonder why they chose to do this. After all, as Peter later says, they could have simply been open about how, what and how much they were giving. Instead, they said they were giving it all, but secretly they weren't. They were lying to the apostles and had conspired together to deceive them. Did Ananias and Sapphira do what they did because they were trying to buy their way into the early church or to buy status within it? Were they more interested in putting their faith in money than in the security of doing God's will? Were they maintaining their trust in their old way of life rather than following the leading of the Spirit? Were they even believers, or just swept along in the crowd? The mark of people in the early church from the day of Pentecost onwards was being full of the Holy Spirit. But Ananias and Sapphira did, did not demonstrate this. The Holy Spirit leads us away from sin and into godly living. But Ananias and Sapphira were seen to be going in the opposite direction. The gifts of the Spirit, listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and elsewhere, and the fruit of the Spirit, listed in Galatians 5, come from our dependence on the Holy Spirit's indwelling, 
not from our self-driven desire for independence. Let's now look at Peter's response to Ananias' money. Until preparing for this talk, I had always thought in my mind that Peter had spoken rather harshly to Ananias, but now I see how carefully he speaks. He does not ask a provocative, why did you do this question, nor did he immediately blame Ananias himself. But rather, Peter blames the sin on Satan, the father of lies. He speaks out a word of knowledge that he had received from the Holy Spirit, who knows all things. He explains that Ananias could have given his gift without trying to deceive. It is the deception that is part of the problem. And Peter is very clear in stating that ultimately sin is not just what we do against each other, but what we do against God. With Sapphira, Peter is also measured in what he says. He asks her to confirm the price paid for the land, giving her the opportunity to own up, but she chose to remain loyal to the lie to the end. Sadly, no repentance, no remorse. For those listening with their theological antennae on this morning, Note that in verse 3, Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And in verse 4, he says, you lied not just to human beings, but to God. The apostles were beginning to understand that the Holy Spirit was not just a gift to the church, but was a person of God himself. And this understanding is developed further through the book of Acts and into the letters of Paul. We do not know how Ananias or Sapphira died. We could speculate that they each suffered a heart attack or a stroke or something similar. But we will never know. And that is not important. It is the timing of their deaths that is where we see the hand of God so acutely. Like them, the timing of our own death is ultimately in God's hand. It is his prerogative, not ours to ordain our final moment. Back in the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam and Eve, You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The penalty for sin, God warned them, is death. It always has been and always will be. Fortunately, for we who believe, God sent his son Jesus to pay the death penalty for our sins instead of making us pay it. So even when we die physically, we do not die spiritually. Paul, writing at length about death and the afterlife to the Corinthian church, that's in 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5, describes death as when what is mortal is swallowed up by life. I like that. What is mortal is swallowed up by life. It is not surprising that Luke, the author of the Acts of the Apostles, sums up the story with this statement. Fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. That word fear, phobos in New Testament Greek, from which we get the word phobia in English, has two intertwined meanings. There is the sense of terror and dread that leads to flight to avoid the source of the fear. 
but there is also the reverential fear and awe that becomes motivational factor in our life, in matters both spiritual and moral. Perhaps this is the key to understanding why this particular story is included in the Bible. It encourages us to have this reverential fear of God, not a mere fear of his power and righteous retribution, but a wholesome dread of displeasing him and a desire to be guided by our trust in God through the indwelling Spirit of God. Why, as a teenager, did I find the story of Ananias and Sapphira such a challenge? I think it was because I knew that in reality I was no better than Ananias and Sapphira and needed to rely on God's mercy to save me from my own predicament. Maybe that is similar to your situation too. Peter in Acts chapter 4 verse 12 tells his listeners, all the leaders and the temple officials in Jerusalem, about Jesus, that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. We do not find peace until we find this truth for ourselves. If you have not already found these truths for yourself, I pray that you quickly will and find your peace with God, the peace that passes all understanding. Now we come to the second main story in Acts chapter 5. Here we find the church was meeting together in a part of the temple in Jerusalem, and people were flocking from all around to see and hear what was going on. Reading from Acts 5 verses 12 to 16 then, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Since this was happening in the Jewish temple grounds, it is not surprising that the temple authorities became concerned. They had already seized Peter and John and kept them overnight. The story is in Acts chapter 4. On that occasion they had released them after beating them up and warning them not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus. To which Peter replied, We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now, in Acts 5, a similar thing happens, but this time it is not just two apostles, it appears to be a lot of them, although only Peter, again, who gets a mention by name. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. The Sadducees were a Jewish sect who did not believe in the resurrection, nor in angels and spirits, 
So the apostles' teaching on the resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit was completely anathema to them. But the reason they had the apostles arrested and put in the common jail was, as Luke says, because they were jealous. Yes, jealous. Here was a group of educated men at the pinnacle of the temple hierarchy and they were jealous of unschooled teachers. The crowds were turning to the apostles rather than to the official temple officers because the apostles talked with power, backed up by miracles. Jealousy is a very powerful emotion, like strong envy, which can lead people astray, doing things they know are wrong. Maybe we have found our life has been controlled by jealousy in the past. Maybe it still remains a driving force in our life today. For the apostles, the jealousy of the temple authorities led to a night in prison. Well, half a night to be precise. For, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. What follows is, to me, one of the most humorous passages in Scripture. It's almost farcical. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on a on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look! The men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. There were red faces all around. The high priest was embarrassed because he had no apostles to parade before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin Confused by being called for a meeting with nothing left on the agenda? The prison guards guarding an empty prison. Eventually, the apostles were located right back in the very temple courts, exactly in the same spot from where they had been seized the previous day and carrying on what they had been doing before. Finally, the scene was set. Everyone was in their place and the proceedings could commence. The high priest was to question the prisoners. He said, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teachings, and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Out of the apostles present, it was Peter who replied, and gave what must be the fullest potted sermon ever. He said, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. 
you, the high priest, had killed him by hanging him on a cross. God exalted Jesus to his own right hand as prince and saviour, so that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses to these things. So is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. All this was diametrically opposite to what the Jewish authorities wanted to hear. They wanted the people to follow their own teachings. They did not want people to acknowledge that Jesus became alive again. They did not want to accept that they had Jesus' blood on their hands. Even Pontius Pilate, the local Roman governor, recognised this when he washed his hands of it. They did not accept Jesus as being the Messiah, the Saviour. They did not see that Israel needed repentance. In their eyes, Israel, under them, was okay, thanks to the temple rituals and sacrifices being carried out according to the prescribed rules. It was the rest of the world that was the problem, not them. They were reluctant to accept the apostles were witnesses to the facts. In fact, they tried to put out what we would say nowadays, fake news about Jesus' body being stolen and the like. And they could not accept the person of the Holy Spirit as living proof of a living God, and certainly one that dwells with man, despite the Old Testament prophecy describing it. This was all too much for the Sanhedrin. When they heard this, says verse 33, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. It is truly amazing, the power of jealousy. Temple leaders wanting to commit murder, despite knowing that God said, do not kill. Even today, in the news, we hear of countries' leaders from around the world being willing to turn military forces against their own countrymen out of jealousy for their reputation and their position of power. Fortunately for the Apostles, a man called Gamaliel, a Pharisee, that is a person who seriously sought to follow God's law in every way, who was respected by the others in the Sanhedrin, stepped up and said, in brief, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Wise words from a wise man, whose words proved to be true. The Apostles' activity did not fail, has not failed, and will not fail. When God is involved with man, it is not wise to go against him. Ananias and Sapphira tried it, and it did not work out for them. In fact, it was quite disastrous. 
The temple authorities and the high priest in particular tried it, and it did not work out for them either. For the temple rituals were stopped when Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians in AD 70. They had become redundant because there was no further need for blood sacrifices, for Jesus had done it all. It follows then that it is wise for us too not to resist the call of God on our lives, but to follow that reverential fear into knowing him better. We will find that the more we pray with him, the more we will want to pray with him. The more we read scripture, the more we will want to read scripture. The closer to the heart of God we seek to be, the more we will want to move closer to God. Let us burn with reverential fear and awe as we seek him and allow the Holy Spirit to direct our lives daily.